Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. The passage, first beating, pages 24 through 25. One day, my mother asked Rano and me to go to the grocery store. We decided to go across the railroad tracks into Southgate. In those days, Southgate was an Anglo neighborhood filled with the families of workers from the auto plant and other nearby industry. Like Linwood or Huntington Park, it was forbidden territory for the people of Watts. My brother insisted we go. I don't know what possessed him, but then I never did. It was useless to argue. He'd force me anyway. He was nine then. I was six. So, without ceremony, we started over the tracks, climbing over discarded market carts and tore up sofas across Alameda Street into Southgate, all white, all American. We entered the first small corner grocery store we found. Everything was cool at first. We bought some bread, milk, soup cans, and candy. We each walked out with a bag filled with food. We barely got a few feet, though, when five teenagers on bikes approached. We tried not to pay attention and proceeded to our side of the tracks, but the youths pulled up in front of us. While two of them stood nearby on their bikes, three of them jumped off theirs and walked over to us. What do we got here? One of the boys said. Spicks to order, maybe with some beans? He pushed me to the ground. The groceries splattered onto the asphalt. I felt melted gum and chips of broken beer bottle on my lips and cheek. Then somebody picked me up and held me while the other seized my brother and tossed his groceries out and pounded on him. They punched him in the face, in the, in the stomach, then his face again, cutting his lip, causing him to vomit. I remember the shrill, maddening laughter of one of the kids on a bike, this laughing like a raven's wail, a harsh wind's shriek, a laugh that I would hear in countless beatings hereafter. I watched the others take turns on my brother, this terror of a brother, and he doubled over, had blood and spew on his shirt and tears down his face. I wanted to do something, but they held me, and I just looked on as every strike against Rano opened me up inside. They finally let my brother go, and he slid to the ground like a rotten banana squeezed out of its peeling. They threw us back over the tracks. In the sunset, I could see the Watts Towers, shimmers of 70,000 pieces of broken beer bottles, seashells, ceramic and metal on spiraling points puncturing the heavens, which reflected back the rays of a falling sun. My brother and I then picked ourselves up, saw the teenagers take off, still laughing, still talking about those stupid greasers who dared to cross over to Southgate. Up until then, my brother had never shown any emotion to me other than disdain. He had never asked me anything unless it was a demand, an expectation, an obligation to be his throwaway boy doll. But for this once, he looked at me. Tears welled in his eyes. Blood streamed from several cuts, lips and cheeks swollen. Swear. You, you got to swear. 
You'll never tell anybody how I cried, he said. I suppose I did promise. It was his one last thing to hang on to, his rep as someone who could take a belt whipping, who could take a beating in the neighborhood and still go back, risking more. It was this pathetic plea from the pavement, I remember. I must have promised. Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. Standing Up for Rano, pages 49 through 51. My brother and I were moving away from each other. Our tastes, our friends, our interests were miles apart. Yet, there were a few outstanding incidents I fondly remember in relationship to my brother. Incidents which, despite their displays of closeness, failed to breach the distance which would later lie between us. When I was nine, for example, my brother was my protector. He took on all the big dudes, the bullies on the corners, the ones who believed themselves better than us. Being a good fighter transformed him overnight. He was somebody who some feared, some looked up to. Then he developed skills for racing and high jumping. This led to running track and he did well, dusting all the competition. I didn't own any talents. I was lousy in sports. I couldn't catch baseballs or footballs and I constantly tripped when I ran or jumped. When kids picked players for basketball games, I was the last one they chose. The one time I inadvertently hit a home run during a game at school, I didn't mean to do it. I ended up crying while running around the bases because I didn't know how else to react to the cheers, the excitement directed at something I did. It just couldn't be me. But Rano had enemies too. <laughs> there were two Mexican kids who were jealous of him. They were his age, three years older than me, one was named Eddie Gomez, the other Ricky Corral. One time they cornered me outside the school. You Jose's brother, Eddie said. I didn't say anything. What's the matter? Can't talk? Oh, he can talk all right, Ricky chimed in. He acting the pendejo because his brother thinks he's so bad. Well, he ain't shit. He can't even run. Yeah! Jose is just a lampiche, a kiss-ass, Eddie responded. They give him those ribbons and stuff because he cheats. That's not true, I finally answered. My brother can beat anybody. Oh, you saying he can beat me, Eddie countered. Sure sounds like he said that, Ricky added. I I'm only saying that when he wins those ribbons, esta derecho, I said. It sounds to me like you saying he better than me, Eddie said. Is that what you saying, man? Ricky demanded. Uh, come on, is that what you saying? I turned around and beneath my breath mumbled something about how I didn't have time to argue with them. I shouldn't have said that. What'd you say? Eddie said. I think he called you a punk, Ricky agitated. You call me a punk, man? Eddie turned me around. I denied it. I heard him, dude. He say you are a punk-ass puto, Ricky continued to extort. The fist came at me so fast, I don't even recall how Eddie looked when he threw it. I found myself on the ground. 
Others in the school had gathered around by then. When a few saw it was me, they knew it was going to be a slaughter. I rose to my feet. My cheek had turned swollen and blue. I tried to hit Eddie, but he backed up real smooth and hit me again. Ricky egged him on. I could hear the excitement in his voice. I lay on the ground, defeated. Teachers came and chased the boys out. Before Eddie and Ricky left, they yelled back, Jose ain't nothing, man. You ain't nothing. Anger flowed through me, but also humiliation. It hurt so deep, I didn't even feel the fracture in my jaw. The displacement, which would later give me a disjointed, lopsided, and protruding chin, it became my mark. Later, when I told Rano what happened, he looked at me and shook his head. You didn't have to defend me to those dudes, he said. They're assholes. They ain't worth it. I looked at him and told him something I never, ever told him again. I did it because I love you. Always Running by Luis Rodriguez Gang Origins Pages 41 through 43 We didn't call ourselves gangs. We called ourselves clubs or clicas. In the back lot of the local elementary school, about a year after Tino's death, five of us gathered in the grass and created a club. The impersonations. The V being an old English usage that other clubs would adopt because it made everything sound classier, nobler, badder. It was something to belong to, something that was ours. We weren't in Boy Scouts, in sports teams, or camping groups. The impersonations is how we wove something out of the threads of nothing. We all take in a pledge, Miguel Robles said. A, a pledge to be for each other, to stand up for the clica. The impersonations will never let you down. Don't ever let the impersonations down. Miguel was 11 years old, like the rest of us. Dark, curly-haired, and good-looking. He was also sharp in running, baseball, and schoolwork, and a leader. Miguel was not prone to loudness or needless talking, but we knew he was the best among us. We made him president of our club. The impersonations was born of necessity. It started one day at the school during lunch break. A few of us guys were standing around talking to some girls. Girls were beginning to, we were beginning to see as women. They had makeup and short skirts. They had teased hair and menstruations. They grew breasts. You know, they were no longer Yolanda, Guadalupe, or Maria. They were Yoli and Lupe and Mari. Some of the boys were still in grass-stained jeans with knee patches and had only begun getting uncontrollable hard-ons. The girls flowered over the summer, and it looked near impossible for some of us to catch up. Older dudes from junior high school, or even some who didn't go to school, would come to the school and give us chilled looks as they scoped out the young women. That day, a caravan of low-scraping cars slow-dragged in front of the school. 
a crew of mean-looking vatos piled out, armed with chains, bats, metal pipes, and zip guns. The mystics rule, one of them yelled from the other side of the school fence. The mystics were a tough, up-and-coming group. They fired their rig 22s at the school and broke a couple of windows with stones. They rammed through the gate in the front entrance. Several not-so-swift dudes who stood in their way got beat. Even teachers ran for cover. Terror filled everyone's eyes. I froze as the head-stomping came dangerously my way, but I was also intrigued. I wanted this power. I wanted to be able to bring a whole school to its knees and even make teachers squirm. All my school life until then had been poised against me, telling me what to be, what to say, how to say it. I was a broken boy, shy and fearful. I wanted what the mystics had. I wanted the power to hurt somebody. Police sirens broke the spell. <clears throat> Dudes scattered in all directions, but the mystics had done their damage. They had left their mark on the school and on me. Miguel and the rest of us started the impersonations because we needed protection. There were other clubs popping up all over, many challenging anybody who wasn't into anything. All of a sudden, every dude had to claim a click. Some of these clubs included the Ravens, the Superiors, Latin Legions, the Im Imitations, Los Santos, and Chugalug, a curious mix of Anglo and Mexican dudes. These were the Southside clubs for South San Gabriel. The biggest on the South Side then were the Illusions and their allies, the Mystics. Over in San Gabriel, other cliques were formed, such as the Regents, the Chancellors, Little Gents, the Intruders, and Little Jesters. Most of the clubs began quite innocently. Maybe they were a team of guys for friendly football. Sometimes they were set up for trips to the beach or to the mountains, but some became more organized. They obtained jackets with their own colors and identification cards. Later, a few of the cliques became car clubs who invested in what little they had in bouncing lowriders, streetwise shorts splashed with colors, which cruised the main drags of Loco Barrios or the main cruising spot we called the Boulevard, Whittier Boulevard in East Los Angeles. Then also, some of the clubs metamorphosed into something more unpredictable, more encompassing, something more deadly. Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. Joining the Tribe, pages 52 through 54. The illusions and mystics were gone. The other clubs also disappeared as the animal tribe consolidated them in as well. Even the impersonations vanished. Miguel Robles joined the tribe and later became one of its generals. The tribe, although based in the hills, pulled in dudes from all over South San Gabriel. Even from areas east of the hills like Muscatel Street, Bartlett Street, and Earl Avenue, which had long-running feuds with Las Lomas. Joaquin Lopez was the leader, El Mero Chingon, as we'd say. Clavo, Wilo, Chicharron, and I were the peewees, the youngest set, who stood outside the tribe meetings held in the fields or in the baseball diamond of Garvey Park. 
looking in until we could collect more experience and participate wholly with the others. Sometimes we were allowed to witness the line. This is where new initiates were forced to run through two rows of tribe members, absorbing a storm of fists and kicks. Inevitably, somebody used brass knuckles and some dude would end up with cracked ribs. We tried being the Southside boys for a short time while we were in Garvey school, getting brown and gold jackets and crashing parties and dances. But we got into trouble with dudes from Sangra who objected to us in borating the term South Sangra on their jackets. There's only one Sangra, Java from the Sangra Diablos told us one night at a quinceanera. He had a small brim hat and leaned on a silver inlaid porcelain tipped mahogany cane. He looked Asian, like Fuji in the movies. Next to him were Tutti, Negro, and Worm, with scars and tattoos on their arms and faces, and extra baggy pants and muscled torsos. Then they chased us down a number of streets and alleys. It was the death of the Southside boys. Miguel got us banging with the tribe. It was during a dance at Garvey Park. The gym was opened one weekend for the local teenagers. Low-rider cars filled the front parking lot and side streets. Girls from barrios all over converged on the bungalow-type gym. That night, I noticed there weren't the usual knots here and there of different club members with their own unique jackets and colors. Only a few still carried proud their old club insignias, including the few of us in the Southside boys. Que hubo Miguel greeted us and as we walked up to me. It had been about two years since we were partners in the impersonations, but this time he had on a black jacket with gold lettering on the back that read the Animal Tribe. I introduced him to the remaining Southside boys. Miguel was kind, courteous, and invited us into the dance for free. This was a tribe party. We were his guests. Inside, the place was almost pitch black and reeked of cigarette and marijuana smoke. Although no alcoholic beverages were allowed, I could see outlines of dudes and their girlfriends drinking from bottles of cheap wine they had sneaked in. A local band played some mean sounds, one of a number of street bands which were popping up all over the valley and east side of the country. I heard about what happened to you guys at Lola's Quinceanera, Miguel said. The old veteranos from Sangra, you see, are forcing all the cliques over there to claim their barrio. There's no more regents or chancellors or little gents. They in Sangra or they dead. So why are they messing with us? Wilo asked. We ain't in their barrio. <laughs> you ain't in Lomas either, man, Miguel said. That's the problem. You guys live in between the two largest hoods. You gotta figure out which one to claim or you're going to get fucked by both of them. What do you say we do, Miguel? Chicharron asked. There's the tribe, man. It's the one that's taking over all the Southside cliques. I don't know. I mean, we still don't live in the hills, I replied. We could still get jumped. I'm telling you, there's no choice, Miguel continued. You want to live? You, you want to breathe air? You got to be in the tribe, man. Del Barotos, eh? That night, 
We took off on our Southside boys' jackets and met with Joaquin, his brother Ernie and Gregorio, and a few other dudes and rucas from the tribe. They were in the darkest part of the park, beyond the gym dance area. Some of them had containers with pills they called colis or blancas. Colis was short for coloradas, which meant reds or downers. Blancas stood for whites, uppers. Miguel talked to Joaquin and Ernie separately for a while about us coming in. Gregorio and the others stayed with us. I looked over to one side where I thought I heard a girl's muffled voice. There seemed to be a figure on top of somebody going up and down on a body laid out on the ground moaning with every motion. Gregorio eyed me, just staring. Finally he spoke. She's being initiated into the tribe. Then he laughed.